Amen. 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 You guys can head right down that way. Cool. All right, this morning we're on week two of our, uh, our series looking at these parables, the parables of the wheat and the weeds, treasures and seeds. This week we are in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, and we're starting in verse 24. We're going to read 24 through 30, and then we're going to jump down because Jesus, this is one of those few parables where Jesus actually explains the parable because the disciples, um, like most of us, don't quite understand what's going on in the first telling. And so they say, yeah, uh, that's a little confusing, Jesus. Why don't you tell us what's going on? He does that for them. So we actually have this one explained for us. Very interesting one, Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Then owners, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then Jesus continues. We're going to jump down to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are, harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out His kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Then they will throw them into the blazing furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Last week, we looked at the parable of the growing seed, and the, and the main thrust of that parable was that the kingdom is present, the kingdom is growing, whether we do anything about it at all. The kingdom is present, the kingdom is growing, it's all around us. Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. In another story uh, where, he's, where he's gathered amongst people and they're, they're talking to him, he says, the kingdom of God is among you, is among you. So Jesus is making announcements about the kingdom of God, the presence of the kingdom, whether we like to see it or not or can see it or not that the kingdom of God is here. And now we have this interesting parable and what stands out to me, what might have stood out to you is this sentence, leave the weeds alone. Let the weeds and the wheat grow together until the harvest. Leave them alone. At first glance, this makes no sense. This seems, can I say, I think the kids are out of the room. This seems stupid. This just does not make sense. I know we don't like that word, but it just doesn't make any sense. This is not how farming works. I'm not a farmer by any means. I grew up in the city in Omaha, Nebraska, though everybody thinks because I'm from Nebraska, I must know everything about farming. It's a lifelong struggle. 
I'm, it's okay, I'll bear that burden. But I don't know anything about farming, but I know that if it's clear that weeds are growing, you have to just get rid of the weeds because they're going to suck the life out of the plants you're trying to grow. So, so let's just get rid of the problem. What, what is the issue here? Farmer, sir, there are clearly weeds growing in your field. Don't you want us to get rid of them? And the farmer says, no, leave them alone. It's just a weird story. It's weird. No wonder the disciples then came to Jesus later and said, uh, you're going to have to tell us more about that one. It's just too weird. Last week what I said is that parables, and I want to kind of back up a little bit, parables are used to confront somebody into hearing a truth or, or wrapping their minds around something that's otherwise difficult to understand if it's just communicated in, in the most plain language. That is difficult for people. And so parables are used to confront us with something that maybe we thought we understood, thought we believed, thought we had a handle on, thought that we actually maybe uh, knew more than what God even thought or thinks about these things. And Jesus comes to say, I want to set the record straight and I'm going to do it with a story. And so I want to show you some other things about the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, that you, you don't really understand. And I'm going to do it through stories. And so this is one of those parables that if we have to look at it and we have to say, what is it that Jesus is trying to confront his listeners with and now us with? What is it that he wants us to understand about the kingdom of God with this story? And as I said, uh, there's this strange part of, of if this farmer knows what he's doing, he would just want to get rid of these weeds. He would just want to get rid of the weeds. I wonder... If that's the, the most strange part of the parable, because that gives us a hint that that's the part we need to pay attention to. It seems to me that the rest of it is understandable enough, and Jesus actually explains it all. But there's one thing that's really interesting that, that the commentators pointed to. Jesus sort of allegorizes this parable, right, in the explanation. He says, this is who this is, that is what this is. The one, per, the one people or the, the thing he leaves out is the servants, he doesn't say who the servants are. He makes a distinction that the servants will not be the harvesters. You got, you, did you catch that? That the servants are not the harvesters. The harvesters are angels. But he never says who the servants are. And it could be then it's, it, that's, a, that's a hint at us that the servants are whoever is hearing this story. The servants are whoever who are hearing this story who, who would believe that it's our job to get rid of the weeds, get rid of the evil. Isn't that our job? Shouldn't we do that? That makes the most rational sense. So I want to suggest that the very part of this parable that is the most perplexing is the thing about which Jesus wants to draw our attention. Pay attention to this perplexing part, this very strange, as I said, almost stupid part of the story. Pay attention right there. Uh, many people have tried to understand this parable and, and looked at it as uh, that this parable is confronting the so-called problem of evil, theodicy. They said, see, this, this is, here it is. The problem of evil says, if God is all-loving, God can do whatever he wants, he's all-powerful, why is he not just eradicating evil? And so some have said, well, here is an instance where Jesus is pointing to the fact that God is not the one causing the evil. There is an evil presence in the world. I want to be clear that this parable does say, Jesus does allude several times to the fact that there is a real presence of evil in our world. 
If we don't believe that, it's, it's, I'm reminded of the classic work by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, where in that the devil says like, the best thing that could happen is if the people of God stopped believing that there was evil at all. That would be the best thing that could happen to us because then we can just do this kind of work. We can sow these seeds in the night and nobody will even know. And they'll just go, oh, where'd that come from? Oh, and people will start blaming God for these things. So the best thing would be that people could forget about evil. And so Jesus does say that he alludes to the fact here that there is a real presence of evil in the world. But I don't believe, and I don't want to sit on that for too long, I don't believe that this particular parable is trying to answer the question of the problem of evil or God's supposed inactivity in the face of evil. I think instead, this is an illustration, again, of the power of the kingdom that flourishes in the face of evil. What Jesus is doing here is he is saying, kind of like what we saw last week, that the kingdom of God is present, the kingdom of God is active, God is working in the world even when it seems like hope is lost. Even when you look around, you go, the world is getting worse and worse. I'm hearing that a lot these days. This world is getting worse and worse. Jesus would remind us that the kingdom of God is flourishing, growing, producing fruit, even in the face of evil. There's another thing that, that, that I was confronted with in reading, reading this parable. And that is the recognition that the judgment of good and evil is far more ambiguous than we would often like to admit. The judgment of good and evil, what is good, what is evil, is often more ambiguous than we'd like to admit. I'm going to say more about that later. So in this parable, Jesus wants us to understand that the kingdom of God is present. It is truly here. It is at hand. Judgment is coming. That's there. It's in the parable. Some of us are uncomfortable with that. Oh, judgment, let's not talk about that anymore. Some of us are too comfortable with that. Yeah, judgment, people are going to get what they deserve. Wherever you're at. Jesus is saying a judgment is coming. There is a judgment coming. And he's also saying that followers of Jesus, servants, are going to need to choose how to participate in the meantime. How do we participate in the meantime? This this fancy phrase us uh, pastors who went to seminary like to say is that the kingdom of God is now, but it's not yet. Wrap your mind around that. That's one of those fancy seminary talk things. The kingdom of God is here, Jesus says, but it's not yet fully present. And so the question for us as followers of Jesus is how do we live in the meantime, in this kind of in-between, where the kingdom of God is here, it's growing, it's all around us, but there is evil in the world. That's a big question that this parable raises. So this uh, parable, similar to what we saw last week, confronts the notion that we humans have work to do if we're to make the kingdom more apparent on the earth. We saw that last week, that the kingdom of God is is, is growing, is flourishing without us. And this one, I believe, confronts the same understanding. The same understanding. Again, uh, if we look at uh, what I mentioned last week, you have the zealots on one side, the zealots that Jesus would have been talking to, these religiously passionate people who thought it was their job to eradicate evil, Get rid of evil. Who is evil? The Romans are evil. They are our oppressors. They are evil. So let's take up arms. Let's get together the militia. Let's get rid of the evil. It's our job to purge the evil. That's what they understood their job to do. And then you have the Pharisees and other religious leaders, the Sadducees, these these guys that they thought it was their job to purge the evil 
through moral reckoning. If the people could just start following God more clearly, more, more, uh, following all of God's rules, all of God's laws, then through a kind of moral reckoning, we would eradicate evil. And so again, it goes back to the sense that it's on us, it's on our actions to force God's hand to bring the kingdom. If we could just do these things, we need to pull out the weeds. you got to pull out the weeds. you got to get rid of the evil, either through military strength or through just pointing out time and again how people are failing morally. And if we could just get them to clean up their act, then the kingdom of God might show up. And so Jesus tells this story. And here's, here's the problem that, that's at hand here, just to really set the stage. The thought at the time was that people would know the kingdom of God was present. We talked about this a bit last week. The people, the religious understanding was that they would know the kingdom of God was present when evil was eradicated. When God's enemies were defeated, then they would know the kingdom of God was fully present. So there's confusion here because Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is present and yet they still see evil. You see the confusion? You see the problem at hand here? It's a problem we face today too. Is the kingdom of God really present? Jesus, you made these promises, and yet we see the mess of our world. So the people would look around to say, look around and say, how can the kingdom be here when there's still so much evil in the world? How can the kingdom be present if evil still exists, if evil actually looks like it's winning sometimes? How can the kingdom be here? Shouldn't we purge the evil? Isn't that the Messiah's job? Hasn't he now given us the job of purging the evil? And so Jesus tells this parable to confront these types of thoughts. Thoughts that many of us still have today. How can the kingdom be present when there's so much evil in the world? He kind of gives us naysayers this parable. It's, it's for us, giving us a glimpse of the kingdom growing, thriving in the midst of evil intentions. And essentially says, servants of mine, This is the hard truth of this parable. I I found myself really confronted with this. Leave the evil alone. Whoa. Those weeds, Jesus says, cannot overcome the growth of the weed, of the wheat. The weeds cannot overcome the wheat, Jesus says. Evil cannot stop the growth of the kingdom, Jesus says. So Jesus seems to suggest here, and this is where it gets really hard, that the real harm comes when good-intentioned servants of the kingdom decide that it's on us to go out there and get rid of that evil. He seems to suggest here that we actually stand to make things worse if we decide it's our job to go and purge the evil. I don't know if you're still with me. Because this, that's hard. That's a hard truth to wrap your mind around. This is a challenging parable. The idea that, shouldn't we just ignore the farmer's orders? Because he might not know what he's really doing. Maybe we should ignore those orders and actually, he's a little off his rocker this time. Let's go get rid of the weeds. Let's go get rid of the evil. And I'm trying to wrap my mind around this, and I'm thinking, does Jesus know more than me? I don't. Maybe he's. Maybe this was a crazy. I don't know. It's interesting reading and studying on this one. Some people were like, I don't know that that's a real parable of Jesus. 
whoa, trying to get around it because it's hard. It's messy. It's messy. But Jesus, I think, knows this. Oh, I know that he knows this. He knows that the evil one really has no power. He knows that. So the evil one has snuck in at night, scattered some seed in the field, hoping, because he doesn't have any power, that one of us will do something foolish and give him power. Whoa. One scholar puts it this way. This was really, un, uh, really helpful for me in the midst of trying to understand this really difficult parable. He says this, He's unable to take positive action anyway, having no real power to muck up the operation, the enemy simply sprinkles around a generous helping of darkness and waits for the children of light to get flustered enough to do the job for him. He continues, he says, It insists, this parable insists that the mysterious, paradoxical tactic of non-interference is the only one that can be effective in the time frame within which the servants are working. No matter, no matter that they have plausible proposals for dealing with the menace as they see it, their very proposals, the farmer tells them, listen to this part, are more of a menace than anything else. Again, try to wrap your mind around that. It is indeed a mystery. It's mysterious. The kingdom of God is working. The enemy is sprinkling these seeds. And all he's doing, because he doesn't have any power, is he's hoping that we will get frustrated enough that in, in being good intention, we will try to do something. And in doing something, we will make things worse. It is a mystery. But it seems to be the way that Jesus answered evil in his time. When you say that's pretty true, Jesus, faced with incarnate evil, faced with, with opposition, faced with those who wanted to murder him, he didn't pluck out the evil. The whole way to the cross and beyond, he sowed seeds of forgiveness. It's mind-blowing. It's, again, it seems irrational. Jesus goes to the cross and even on the cross saying, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do. Who among us would say that? Forgive these guys that nailed me to a cross? That's crazy. But what does Jesus know that we don't? So Jesus is showing us that in a kingdom where good and evil are mingled, the kingdom reveals its power in sacrificial love not in vengeance or violence. And he asks his followers to do the same. It's important to note that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that in the explanation of the parable, Jesus does assign who will be responsible for the judgment. Did you catch that? He, he assigns who's responsible. It's not us. The angels are the harvesters. The Son of Man is the judge. Jesus is the judge, not us. And so again, we come back to this thing that the truth for us that this parable clearly speaks is that the judgment of good and evil is often more ambiguous than we'd like to admit. I don't like that. I like to think that I'm right. That I can look out there and go, that's bad and that's good. But this parable seems to say that, ah, human beings are flawed. I guess. That we're flawed, that... The judgment between good and evil is often more ambiguous 
than we'd like to admit. I mean, we like to believe like the zealots and Pharisees of Jesus' day that we know what's good and bad. We know who's in or out. We know. We know. But we're often too quick to make judgments. In staff meeting the other day, we were looking at this parable and uh, the comment was made, you know, though, if these two things are growing up together and you can tell the weeds, why can't we just pull out the weeds? There's kind of this frustration that we have, right? This moment of just get rid of the weeds. If we knew there was a weed here, if I could find the weed today, let's get rid of the weeds so that we don't all get affected. It's interesting, though, in doing this study, if, uh, if we can get that, that, that picture up there on the screen. Jesus in this parable is actually using a specific word. If you've grown up in church, you've heard this referred to not as the wheat and the weeds, but the wheat and the tares. Uh, in the Middle East, these are actually, this is how similar the wheat and the weeds looks like. This is what the actual plants growing in the Middle East. Uh, it's uh, the wheat or the, the weeds there, which will be on your right, is a plant called darnel. And really, the only way farmers can tell the only way they can tell which is which, if they let them get to this place, is that when they become ripe, the wheat will fall over from the weight of the seeds, while the darnel, the tares, will stand upright. I believe. So one of them falls over, one stands upright, and that's the only way they can tell. And they can't, they can't tell the difference until they're becoming ripe. It's an interesting thing that Jesus points out in this parable, that it's hard to tell. It's so much more ambiguous than we would like to admit. So much more ambiguous. So our best option, Jesus says, is to let them grow together. Let them grow together. We don't have to look that far to see the effects, the negative effects of us trying to pull out the good, or trying to pull out the bad in our own existence. So this matters a lot because uh, I, I'm trying to wrap my mind around. I've been doing a lot of research in my years of youth ministry and looking at all these books. In the last decade, I don't know if you're aware of this, in the last decade, there's a growing number of young people age 18 to 29 who are walking away from participation in the life of the church. Some believe that over half of our young people will walk away. That's some of the statistics they're finding. And it's a little bit scary. And there's, a, there's positive research coming out now that I'm very excited about. Uh, but in one of these books, it's called You Lost Me. President of Barna Research, Dave Kinneman, he lays out Barna's research on the topic. He identifies six off-ramps in today's churches that are leading these young people away from the church. And some of these off-ramps I would identify as, as things where the church has had good intentions of trying to purge evil things, bad things, things that could be scary, things that could threaten our kids. And in doing so, we've ripped up some of the, some of the wheat and ripping up the weeds. One of these six things, he says, is exclusivity. That the church has this kind of exclusivity. That people think it's kind of an insider's club. And that you have to do certain things to be a part of it. He writes this, and I just want you to listen for some buzz, buzzwords in what he says. He says, exclusivity flies in the face of these young people's collective values and reference points. Tolerance has been the cultural north star for most of their upbringing. Inclusiveness, diversity, and political correctness are ideals that have shaped this generation. So you think about the language we use about some of these things. Political correctness? Get rid of it! Tolerance? Ah, no! 
And he's saying there's a generation being shaped by these things. And so as we maybe start to say, like, we got to get rid of tolerance, we got to get rid of political correctness, we got to get rid of these things, he's saying there's an entire group that is shaped by these things. So as we struggle against these things, as we try to rip out these weeds, have we unintentionally ripped out some wheat as well? I want to pause as I, as I start to head towards the close here to acknowledge that this is a messy topic. This is messy. This is messy. This, this idea that we would pause in the face of evil, that we would look at it and say, like, I'm not so sure that I should rip it out because I might rip out good. It's, it's, it's going to take what? It's going to take great faith for us to carry any of this out. Faith that though you perceive the presence of evil, you're instructed by the farmer to trust that God's plan is best. This is hard. It's messy. It's weird. It's weird. It goes against everything in us that says, gosh, we just got to get rid of the evil. It's easy to see. Let's get rid of it. Evil. We got to get rid of it. One author calls this move the grace of doing nothing. The grace of doing nothing. He says, certainly one could argue that the Christian church has never taken the grace of doing nothing as an article of faith. Typically, when sabers rattle, the church rallies with them. But this parable, with its unlikely phrase, an enemy has done this, invites even the angriest reactionary to consider the complexity of wheat and weeds, good and bad, us and them. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do? Is it all just hopeless? We say, oh, I guess we just got to leave the evil alone. Just let it go. That seems pretty hopeless. That, that almost seems irresponsible, doesn't it? That seems irresponsible. Just say, oh, let's just leave it alone. So I've really been confronted with the topic of identity as I've studied this, as a kind of take home of what do we do? What do servants of the kingdom do in the meantime while the wheat and the weeds grow together and we wait for the judgment where we won't judge but the king will judge. King Jesus will judge. And as I thought about that, it reminded me that I have all of these identities. All of these identities. I am Chad McDaniel, father, husband, son, brother, follower of God. And all of these labels, they seek to define me. I'm a pastor. I'm an American. I'm now the resident of the state of California. And I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God and all of these try to define me. There's almost a war within me at times of where do you go with these? How do you, how do you uh, live into all of these identities? Is it possible? Is there one that overrides the other? How do you live in this tension? So this parable, some have argued, challenges our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus here demonstrates that citizens in the kingdom, those under the authority of King Jesus, are to trust in Jesus' kingdom policies of sacrificial love. It's this kind of living that pours out one's life for all, even for our enemies. Are we up for the task? Are we willing to embrace this identity, even though it's really hard, it's really messy, and sometimes we might even get taken advantage of? We aren't the harvesters. We aren't the judge. These roles have been clearly assigned. We are citizens in the kingdom of God. And in God's kingdom, our role is to live faithfully, proclaiming the good news that no matter what you see out there, the kingdom of God is at hand. God is at work. God is redeeming and restoring lives. That's our job. 
proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. Salvation is at hand. We have an answer for those questions. It's Jesus. Our hope is not in any and all of these other things. It's not in a political movement, a political strategy. It's not in getting the right Supreme Court people there. It's not in getting the right laws, tax laws. That's not our ultimate hope. That's not our hope. Our hope is in the kingdom of God and Jesus defeating death. Defeating the devil. Showing that the devil has no power here. He's got no power here. My New Testament professor who literally wrote one of the biggest books on the parables I've ever seen. Many have used it. We got it at a pastor's conference once. I've seen people using it as a doorstop. and all, But it's a great book on the parables if you're studying the parables. Otherwise, it makes a great paperweight. Um, he writes this. We must stop being evil. And we must stop evil from destroying. But here's the crux that I kind of want to leave you with this morning. How can we stop evil without becoming evil in the process? That may well be, he says, the human question. How do we stop evil? How do we work against the forces of evil without becoming evil ourselves? If we are to be citizens of the kingdom of God, this is a real struggle, a real human question for us. And so I want to finish by uh, encouraging you to vote. You with? Okay, that's a weird, right? <laughs> Stay with me. I want to encourage you to vote early and vote often, as they do in Chicago, okay? That's the old joke in Chicago, vote early, vote often. I'm caught up in this election, and I'm trying to figure out what, this happens to me every four years where I say, Chad, stay away. Don't get involved in this, because once it's over, it's over, and life kind of goes on. But I, I'm getting caught up in it. And I heard somebody on a podcast the other day saying something really interesting that gave me hope that I think gives us something to walk away with this morning as we really think about. And I'm not going to figure any of this out for you this morning. I'm sorry. This isn't like, oh, what do we do in the face of evil? Well, let me give you five things. Sorry, this is one of those messy ones where we each have to figure it out. We have to listen to Jesus, listen to the Spirit guiding us. But I was listening to somebody the other day, and he said, you know, in the face of all these political things and Christians being pulled one way or the other, he says, I want to encourage people to vote. I want to encourage people to vote every single day in the way they live. Every day, make a vote in how you live, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you talk to people, how you listen to people. Every day, vote. Vote with the words you speak. Vote by representing the kingdom full of grace and mercy, full of sacrificial love. Vote in how you live your life. Vote. This parable's messy. It's confrontational, but I think it confronts us right where we are right now. At least it's doing that for me. Maybe I'm only speaking to myself. But this parable says that by trusting in Jesus... That is how we stop evil without becoming evil in the process. We trust that Jesus is at work, the kingdom is alive and active, and we believe that the way of sacrificial love is the best chance we have. The greatest vote we can cast is laying down our lives for another. One day at a time, one act at a time. That's our best chance at eradicating evil or fighting against evil without becoming evil ourselves. Would you pray with me? God, this is indeed a messy parable. It is confusing. It seems to fly in the face of human logic even. 
Lord, we wrestle with the things we see in our world that seem obviously evil, Lord. There are obvious things to us, God, that just are wrong. God, things that threaten human lives, things that threaten human dignity, things that cause people great harm. We look at those things, Lord, and we ask you, what do we do with that? What is an appropriate Christian response to those real evil things? Lord, you, you, had, you tell us here in this parable that evil is real, and we have seen that. We know that it's there. Lord, help us to discern how we act in the face of evil. Help us, Lord, in tough moments to embody your kingdom values of sacrificial love. Lord, help us to be reminded of you coming to this earth, being mocked, being beaten, hanging on a cross in the face of real evil, real enemies, and yet forgiving them. What a strange thing. Give us courage to do the same, Lord. We need courage from you because I confess, Lord, I could not do that on my own strength. So may your spirit be a strong voice in our ears, guiding us in these moments where we're confronted by questions of good and evil. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our closing song?